Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition from why we do what we do perspectives. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. On Behavioral Grooves, we like to talk with researchers and authors and practitioners to unlock mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. And before we get into that, I just want to remind our listeners that if you enjoy this episode, please take the time to post a quick rating or write us a one-sentence review. It does. It really, really does go a long way in helping other people discover our podcast. Like a recent note we got on Apple Podcasts from our friend and guest, Professor Vanessa Bonds. Thanks for those kind words, Vanessa. Ah, uh, yeah. It warms our hearts. It makes us feel significant. <laughs> All right. Referring back to our other uh, episode other- with uh, Dr. Krulansky. And if you want to amplify your support of Behavioral Grooves, you can check out our Patreon page and share a little bit of your monthly latte budget with us. <laughs> Who has a latte budget? Uh, I mean, is that really a thing? Uncle Google says it is. Oh, Uncle Google. <laughs> Uncle Google. You don't believe everything Uncle Google says, do you, Tim? Well, All right. No. Okay. So on this episode, we're, we're always interested in talking with people who are doing good work in the world. And our guests today are doing just that. Yes, they are. And I say they because we have two guests in our discussion today. And the first is David Burke, and he is the chief program officer at Team Rubicon, an organization that was founded by U.S. Armed Forces veterans in 2010 with the purpose of voluntarily joining together as vets to work on what they call missions in the aid of regular citizens who are suffering because of natural disasters. It's it's a very cool story of how they got going. But to think that today they have more than 170,000 volunteers is amazing, especially in a world where volunteerism is on the decline, not on the rise. Yeah, very, very true, Kurt. Our second guest today is a past research colleague and a friend of mine, Patty Norberg. Patty is a researcher and professor of marketing at Quinnipiac University. And uh, isn't that the university that does all of the political surveys during all those election cycles, Tim? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. But Patty's work has always been focused on behavioral science topics like how marketing messages impact consumers or how the way prices are displayed on products impacts our perception of value. She's super clever and super curious. She's also served as the editor-in-chief of the Journal for Consumer Marketing, Mm. which is a whole other conversation. (laughs) But in this case, and that is the case of Team Rubicon, she's been trying to understand how volunteers feel when they band together to work on these projects. Does it help them live better lives or does it hurt them? Yeah, you'd think that getting a bunch of veterans together in natural disaster zone could easily trigger PTSD. So it was a good thing for Team Rubicon to invite Patty to come in and study the situation. But counterintuitively uh, to what we might think or have thought, what Patty found in her work is that psychological well-being and resilience actually improve with these volunteers when they go on these missions, that they become more resilient overall because of the missions with Team Rubicon. Yeah, it's really cool. Now, researchers have known for some time that volunteering can improve a volunteer's optimism and a sense of connectedness to the world. But Team Rubicon is not just your average food kitchen or clothes closet <laughs> or you know packaging meals for hungry people. Like Team Rubicon is a very specific group of people going into very dangerous situations to help those in need after natural disasters strike. So it's really great to have this research to demonstrate that it's not only doing good for the recipients, but also for the volunteers. In our conversation with David and Patty, we'll talk about the design 
around the founding of Team Rubicon, the importance of resilience when it comes to mental health and psychological well-being, how the culture of Team Rubicon positively impacts those things, and where Team Rubicon is headed next. So with that, Groovers, we hope that you sit back with a warm cup of well-being through volunteerism and enjoy our conversation with David Burke and Patty Norberg. David Burke and Patty Norberg, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's good to have both of you here. We are very excited to be talking about T Rubicon, but we're going to start with a speed round and uh, we're going to start with David. I just want to uh, ask David really quickly Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, nice. I saw you had a cup earlier, so I saw that. Uh, yeah, could have been there. tea. It's, it's, it could have been tea, but I, I assume. All right. Could have been tea. Patty, how about you? Coffee or tea? Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Oh, you're one of those international types. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. All right. David, uh, dinner with your favorite musician or favorite actor? Musician. Musician. You, Tim, will like that very much. Um, all right. Patty, going to ask you the same thing. Actor. Musician. Musician. All right. Does anybody come to mind, just real quickly, uh, a musician, when you think about this? Like, who, who is there someone that just like, I would really love to have dinner with fill in the blank? Pink. They have, they have to be alive? <laughs> no, they <laughs> do not. We, we, I, we transcend all of the transcend uh, generations. Yeah. Pink's brother lives in town here in Durango. No yeah. way. Yeah, honest. honest I might yeah. have to come visit now. On <laughs> <laughs> the on the, the the slight chance that Pink might be visiting, right? right. There you go. Okay. Uh, uh, well, okay. So I think Pink's a, a good call, David. How about you? Any? Oh, I was I mind? was trying to dodge it, Tim. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's that's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd have okay. to that, dig through a little more. It's a speed round question. Yeah, that that that's okay. So let's start with David. Is Team Rubicon healing for the volunteers? or for the people that they serve? In design or in practice? Ah, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good question. Let's, let's take both. Let, let's take both. And yeah, we're- so it's been uh, a long, long conversation for the organization, but the organization's designed around helping disaster survivors or reducing the potential impact of future disasters. But in practice and in research, we've found that it has a positive impact on the volunteers that provide those services as well. That That's very cool. So let's back up just a little bit. Tell us what is Team Rubicon? Team Rubicon is a veteran-led humanitarian organization that serves people before, during, and after disasters and crises. That's pretty much verbatim mission statement, but it's a movement of about 170,000 people that work domestically and internationally from mitigating the effects of fires and floods to rebuilding people's homes, to surge medical capacity and clean water uh, in rapid onset events outside of the United States. That's great. Can you give us an example of, 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 of a project that you've done recently? Yeah, so all of the flooding that we're all seeing all over the news, this, this kind of thousand year or very rare flooding in Vermont, New York, Pennsylvania, that's still happening and waters finally are receding. Uh, each of those three states has Team Rubicon operations ongoing where volunteers are helping homeowners get all that flood and flood-laden debris out of their homes so they can start the process of getting back to normal. 
So what differentiates Team Rubicon from other pro-social organizations out there? Obviously, lots of different organizations that do great work, but what separates Team Rubicon? So yeah, there's a ton of organizations that are doing great work in disaster and outside of disaster, but there are a couple of things I think unique to Team Rubicon. One is that we have really leveraged a military culture and ethos founded by Marines, staffed largely by military veterans or, or um, partially at least by military veterans, volunteers, mix of military veterans and civilians as well. And leveraging that culture and ethos and maintaining a commitment to action and service and really, really seeking to minimize the bureaucracy and the kind of paralysis by analysis that many organizations hit when you look at a, a disaster scenario. Very good. Thank you. Uh, is there anything when you think about that that really helps in the delivery of this as you're thinking about that military background, the military kind of element uh, for going for going all of the red tape and some of the bureaucratic components that going in there. How, how does that help for people on the ground in these disaster um, areas and situations? Yeah, I think, Kurt, the, the unique background and experience that military veterans bring is usually a blend of training and real life mm. deployment experience that is in an environment where you do not have everything you need either to be safe or to complete a mission or to really address a challenge. Mm -hmm. And that understanding of austerity and understanding of picking a starting point and just moving and not waiting for the perfect solution or all the tools to reveal themselves. I think that mindset that carries through from our military members, veteran members, translates to faster action and a starting point for a disaster survivor. You know, you, if you're just standing in front of your home and it looks like something you've never seen before or just the, the shell of what you used to love and live in, it might be hard for you to pick a point to start. Mm -hmm. If someone walks up and says, Hey, we've done this a few times. Are you cool with some help? And just gets that family started on the course to recovery. That first step might be the hardest one. And so that, that part of the mindset I think is, is good. And then these environments are inherently risky. Military mm -hmm. veterans are trained and experienced in managing risk and making risk-based decisions and understanding when something's worth a risk and when it's not. And when we should slow down and make sure we do have the right tool or the right equipment or a safer approach. Uh, and that balance is very important for an organization as we grow to not put people in harm's way because that changes as organizations grow, obviously. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Thank you, David. Yeah, we're the kinds of things that you're you're sharing here, David, are not just observational. These are things that you don't you haven't just like, oh, this is kind of what we do, but you've backed it up by research. And I want to bring Patty into the conversation here to start uh, share some of the the things that that you're learning uh, from a research perspective about the volunteers themselves. Maybe we could we could start there. And, and why is this volunteerism different? I suppose I think. Part of what makes Tomb Rubicon different is the fact that they not only are interested in improving the lives and well-being of the people they're helping that have lost their homes and lives, et cetera, but of, their of the volunteers themselves. And if you look back at the original, kind of the founding of the company, I, I really encourage anyone to read it. It's an amazing story. And it really was built on this, how do we bring military veterans back into civilian life 
and maintaining that sense of purpose, sense of identity, sense of community. So the research that I do with Team Rubicon is really kind of housed there. You know, are the military veterans that are coming into Team Rubicon benefiting from their experience? There are alternative hypotheses that would argue and have argued (laughs) that deploying military veterans in disaster situations isn't necessarily beneficial to them. Everything that we've found and studied since at least I've been there in 2017 demonstrates that they absolutely do benefit from engaging in these types of recovery missions. We measure and have been measuring since 2017 impact on both military and their side-by-side civilians on these missions, their resilience, um, psychological well-being measures, satisfaction with life, resilience being kind of the one that's been measured consistently since probably 2016, actually before pre-me. Um, and, and so we, we've continued to have evidence or compile evidence year over year. Some of this we've presented demonstrating that post-deployment Members do feel a stronger sense of resilience or volunteers uh, as compared to pre-deployment. And that not only is demonstrated or shown for military veterans overall, but if we look at the subgroup of those who have experienced PTSD and other trauma from military experience, they also benefit. That's fascinating. Going, Going back to that speed round question. And David, I think you kind of answered it there and just your reframing of that question. Is this outcome more of a of a just a happy, lucky kind of outcome of the actual work that you're doing? Or was it designed into somewhat part of that initial thought of uh, Team Rubicon at, at its founding? And I'm guessing it was a, maybe a little bit of both, but probably more of the f- the first than than more of the latter, but help me understand that. Well, no, it's it's a it's a great question, Kurt. I think that it is a little bit of both. It's a little bit of happy outcome, you know, secondary impact. We've said we've named it a bunch of different things, but it is something we put a ton of focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, volunteerism across the country is shrinking, not growing. So to start a volunteer based organization in 2010 and grow over those 13 years to 170,000 registered volunteers, we're doing something that is resonating with a population and, and bringing them in. To maybe go back a little bit into Patty's explanation where the research started, we had early on received funding from a lot of veteran-based organizations, not folks that were interested in disaster relief. And from the founding said, community purpose and identity are things that dip when you take a uniform off. and a lot of jobs don't offer a lot of all three or maybe only one of them. A lot of community is lost when you don't have a unit that you're assigned to. Identity can be challenging if you wore a uniform with your name tag and your service insignia and you knew every, you know, it's just a different, a different environment and it's hard to replicate. If you're told the most important job you'll ever have is when you're 18, mm-hmm. how do you expect to, wow. to transition out and find satisfaction? So, the opportunity to serve others, even if it's only a few days a year or a week a year, helps kind of fill up some of those buckets. And and that was a theory early. And we had another researcher, not Patty, who we've been working with for a long time, but we had another researcher who said, guys, I think if we study this, you're going to find out you're triggering PTS and you're doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And 
our CEO at the time and founder, Jake, said, you know what, Mike, if that's the case, we'll close the doors or we'll change the organization. And so the commitment to make sure we weren't doing harm to the people that are the agents of the mission, what, you know, has been ever since the idea of research uh, was brought into the organization. So there is some design to it, but it's also a, a happy, happy outcome. And it's not limited to veterans. Our civilian members report very similar findings back as we do this research. So looking at it from a big picture perspective, serving someone less fortunate than you are is probably good for everyone. You know, finding that opportunity, that outlet for service in your life, I think is a, a positive for almost anyone. I just have to ask, to what degree did you anticipate this kind of response? I mean, to have 170,000 people, you know, engaged, <laughs> it, it, it sounds remarkable. You know? And and I don't want to, I don't want to be misleading at all, Tim. The engagement rates are uh, what, the, that's what voluntary activation is, right? Volunteer organizations, in order to to reach the mission you want to, the the numbers have to get big because, you know, you have kids and you have a dog and you have a job and you have a family and volunteering has to fit in that. So we we go big to make sure we can do as much work as possible. Uh, so the engagement rates vary year to year and, you know, quarter to quarter. But no, we did not anticipate this scale. I've been with the organization since 2013. So not from the founding, but even then, we had projected maybe getting to a hundred thousand people and thinking that would have been like kind of the, the end of something. And, you know, you, yeah. it's hard yeah. to envision stuff, uh, from early days, but no, we did not anticipate quite this, this scale or this resonance with, with population. It is, but I want to get back to some of the, the mental health research that you're doing that you've got mental health professionals involved, uh, with the teams. Is that, is that correct? As part of our international team, part of the international work we do is an initiative from the World Health Organization called the Emergency Medical Teams. It was actually born out of the earthquake in Haiti, the same event that our organization was born out of. And one of the requirements for the EMTs is to ensure there is access to a mental health professional, a clinician that can be there to support that critical incident stress management, critical incident stress debriefing, and the real experience of trauma that you have when you work in an emergent medical scenario or a mass casualty scenario post-disaster or uh, or human cost. So that role is filled by a, a dear friend that has just a very well-aligned <laughs> approach and philosophy to mental health to the organization. And we make sure those resources are available. And in addition to that, we, you know, we often see relatively traumatic events, even in our domestic work. You can only observe destruction so much without having an impact on you as an individual. So we have resources that are kind of the on-demand. One partner is the Headington Institute. Another is our one of our planning partners, International SOS, that has that same critical incident stress management and debriefing service for the events that do represent the most trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's always a chance post major hurricane that one of our volunteers discovers remains in a home that we're working in or something that is a really tough, tough, traumatic experience. And uh, we want to make sure that we maintain the highest duty of care we can and support those mental health needs of our volunteer base in direct connection to the mission. And then being a veterans-based organization, veteran-led organization, we also see folks that do have 
you know, post-traumatic stress from their service or another source. And we, we partner for that work. We have mm. a ton of incredible partners across the veteran space that do great work. That's, you know, database evidence driven work that's measured, that's studied, that's understood. We don't do those inpatient, outpatient treatment programs. We rely on best in class partners to do those. So going digging deeper on that, because David, I think you mentioned earlier that the, one of the original researchers you had on this was worried that doing this, particularly for people who have had that may trigger some of that um, PTSD, right? So within that, this is a question for both, uh, I, I don't know, Patty or you, uh, when you think about the research that you've seen that that it doesn't do that, that it isn't triggering um, that to that degree that you that it could have. Is that based upon some of these aspects that have been put in place, like the mental health professional being on the team and having those resources available? Or is it more general that just being a volunteer and having that sense of worth and that sense of community, the, the other pieces that you talked about override kind of whatever else might have been able to trigger some of those those kind of negative side effects that might come from that. Does that a very roundabout question, but hopefully you guys can pull some meaning out of it. <laughs> I don't know, Miss Patty, you can jump in. I think, you know, when we when the organization was founded, it was 2010, it was the kind of core of the global war on terror. The military had bulked up and was declining in size. The big social issue that everyone was talking about was veteran transition and and community purpose and identity came out of that as a, a gap that we saw. And that was kind of the early driver for the research. And Patty hit on it now, but we're more divided as a nation than we've ever been. And well, I, maybe I'm overstating that like so many people are or could be. Um, but it's, at least since the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. Since, yeah the yeah. way, the way that I've experienced it, we're at the most divided point we've ever been. And this, understanding of the civilian military civilian veteran divide that we can glean from team rubicon because of our volunteer base because of the work we're doing and and potentially understand if it's service if it's we used to say all the time shared pain and suffering makes a stronger team right if that's what breaks down divides then let's take that and apply it other places let's find ways to get people to yeah. work together to learn together to sweat together so that we can contribute to reducing a division in our country. And even if we start by studying it just at that civilian military or civilian veteran perspective, at least we can contribute to the potential solution long-term because you know, we're not in a good place. And we don't see those divides on TR operations, but we have people of every political stripe, every background, every race and ethnicity. And we don't see people at each other's throats. We see people working together to help someone else. So if we can understand that, I think that's the social issue that we can kind of second chapter social issue that we can hopefully contribute to. Fantastic point. Social connectedness is a big deal. And I agree. I mean, that's part of, if you look at, I think we didn't bring this in, but the loneliness yeah. findings from the Surgeon General and what social connectedness really does and that we can create these virtuous spaces where and volunteering is fits right in there where you know that there's this kind of recursive cycle of being connected 
with each other, creating bigger community, wanting to give back more after that, feeling even more social connections. So I think there's a, a big contribution there. I think since we've been, you know, kind of measuring this since 2017 and and refining those measures of are there these improved outcomes in psychological well-being areas and in resilience, you know, the organization was different. It was smaller. The partnerships that David's talking about weren't all in place at that time, and we were still seeing these improvements. And as we were able to get at causality, are the things at Team Rubicon really influencing resilient, or are they just hiring resilient volunteers <laughs> right, or engaging right. resilient? There is some of that. I'm not going to uh, say there is not some of that, but the but we do still see the change in resilience measures. So I would have to say that more generally, there is an improvement. And these partnerships and support systems would only, you know, support that and in, in, in probably, you know, strengthen those, those areas of improvement, even if you get to that, you know, end of one or two yeah. in a particular disaster mission. Yeah. And I'll add a little bit to it, Kurt, that I think we've designed an inclusive, supportive culture. Yeah. And there's a, the, there's seven cultural principles. The one that always lands in the middle is get shit done. And people are... <laughs> you know, hard charging type A yeah. and they do a lot of great work. But at the end of every day on an operation, there's some kind of debrief. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the debrief in every way possible. We learn from it operationally. We learn how to improve tactics. We learn what risks showed up and how we're going to avoid them the next day. More often than not, it becomes a massive decompression that's not just the trauma or damage or destruction or help that you provided that day, but that conversation continues on and it creates a connection or it creates an opening for people to share some experiences they had that reminded that they were reminded of today or that they experienced previously and with an environment and with someone that they just busted their ass next to for a day and sweat and maybe bled and, you know, just worked really hard on something that wasn't theirs and was not going to benefit them personally for the next weeks, months, or years, but ultimately benefited them personally then and and for a long time to come. And those those debriefs, I think, create a positive impact that avoids triggering event or that starts to create additional resilience in in individuals and in the group. So that's part of the design. It's something we managed to keep through the COVID operations. We did virtual mm-hmm. campfires when people were helping in really small scale events and didn't have the time to really get together at the end of the day. It was like, show up here, do this, and then go home. So we're risk, we're reducing the risk of viral spread. And we would get on these, uh, do a yeah. Teams call, and people would be able to talk about who they helped that day or what it achieved. And then the stories would kind of flow from there. Patty, speaking of, of the pandemic, were there... Uh, any blips in the data? Were there were there changes over over time that you, that you noticed? Uh, yes, but I think kind of backing up, COVID allowed. So one of the things, and David, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this or not accurate, but one of the things that you know Team Rubicon was was looking at is how do we create missions that are more localized that so that we can engage more of our members that can't fly halfway across the country for several days in a row. And COVID, I think, really catapulted that effort um, mm-hmm. where everything was a local mission. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the concerns or one of the things we wanted to look at is 
you know, do the local missions kind of do the same things as the big, you know, ones that everybody hears about in the media? Are people, you know, are the the members, both volunteers and uh, civilian and veteran volunteers, benefiting from these kind of small localized events? And so kind of the initial study of that, you know, I broke out, you know, the COVID related missions versus, you know, the hurricanes and everything else going on and looked at the differences in resilience and there, there's no significant difference. So those localized events are just is the, the preliminary evidence looks, says that the localized events are doing just as much benefit as these big giant ones. So that's kind of nice to see too. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, the impact that this has again, as you said at the very beginning, I think you guys both talked about this, that there's the value that comes from the work that you're doing and the, the, the people who are being impacted by whatever the natural disaster is and the, and the help that the teams are providing but this uh, additional element of resiliency, the the community that's being built, a variety of different things. We just uh, had a conversation with, I always pronounce his name wrong, uh, Aria uh, Krugelinski. Did I pronounce that right, Tim? Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Um, and, and his recent work, psychologist, social psychologist, has done a lot of great work on on a number of different motivation and other factors and different things. But a lot of his recent work has been on significance. And what he has been finding is that we are um, on a quest for significance. And David, I think one of the interesting pieces that you mentioned earlier is that when somebody gets a job at 18 that is giving them this you know, a, a huge significant component, and then it goes away, this aspect of of reclaiming that is is this in your guys's mind is any of that significance part of what is adding to the value of of the work that they're doing is part of that uh, what you're seeing and um again my long-winded questions tim is much better at these than i am so (laughs) no i think that's exactly what the volunteer base is looking for and and everybody has a little different motivation around it, but the, at the end of the day, you're doing significant work. You're doing something that you can connect and understand. Your family can connect to and understand and see what you did or what you do. And I think that's, that's the, one of the driving connection points. And, and to Patty's previous point about local events with that large volunteer base have been able to respond to more and more small scale disasters. We call them low attention disasters, but ultimately they're, less resourced events, right? They get mm-hmm. less help from state, federal governments and from philanthropy. Those small events are significant because it's your community, right? It's something that's relevant to you. You know the name of that town. When I, when we fly people into Nebraska after a major tornado, when we were a small organization and they didn't really know it, it was significant because they knew the organization enough, but they didn't know the place. And when people are helping in places that they know, I believe that also connects to significance and it with the right information we can share that those families don't get any help those families are kind of left out of the broader disaster services system so your your help is even more significant to that individual because they're not getting federal money fema's not declaring a disaster after a small flood or tornado Mm. they can't do everything but that family suffers you know more greatly or differently and that little bit of volunteer help can make a huge difference. Uh, I love that. That's that's fantastic. That is. Patty, I, I want to get back to 
from a research perspective, you and I have a long history in doing research together. And I, and I know that as, when I've been working with you, that one research question, as soon as that starts to emerge as sort of being solved, it tends to lead to more research questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, and I think there's part a of, bunch. yeah, there's right. So, <laughs> so I guess part of me is, is kind of curious about what do you feel like you've got a pretty good handle on and what's next? I think we have a pretty good handle on the impact of engaging in disaster response on volunteer well-being and that it's favorable. I, I, I think we have a great handle on that. Team Rubicon has a, a bigger research agenda. Part of it is uh, on the client side itself, you know, those who they're helping. And my work is mostly in the volunteer space itself. And the research agenda has lots of questions that connect to this duty of care that David has mentioned. That's kind of the big thing and the various ways of, of looking at that. So we need to delve more into the other psychological well-being measures that we haven't, you know, resilience. We have a nice longitudinal look at. We're using kind of Carol Riff's scale, which she measures autonomy, environmental mastery, personal growth, uh, personal relations with others, purpose in life, self-acceptance. Um, and we have some evidence that those uh, well-being measures also seem to be favorably impacted and typically through the skills that they're, the volunteers are gaining through Team Rubicon, that's been a big push, um, but also that sense of purpose that a person feels. Um, I think we want to do more cuts in terms of specifically what types of missions are leading to uh, the highest impacts, mo most favorable impacts, and you know how can we mimic them across mission regardless of the type of mission, but it, I think it's all favorable. And the other piece is this mix between military and civilian. Um, and that cross understanding, mostly from the civilian side, that you know when a veteran comes back into civilian life, what's that understanding on the civilian side of of their experience? Um, and Team Rubicon focuses a lot on that, and these disaster response missions allow both you know civilians and military members to work side by side, veterans to work side by side. So there is that kind of shared understanding or greater shared understanding. So I think our next round is to really start looking at that more, especially as David has mentioned to me in previous meetings, you know, the, the veterans, the popu veteran population, in, you know, the v total population in the United States is getting smaller and the types of missions are, are different, you know, with technology. So, you know, is that creating less of an understanding from the rest of society about mm. the military veteran experiences. So that's kind of a measure, just not only within Team Rubicon, but something we want to look at probably more broadly throughout the United States as well. It, it sounds fascinating. Um, David, as we as we wrap up here, I'm, we know the Team Rubicon is working internationally, not just, not just within the United States now. Mm -hmm. um, but sort of this what's next question, I'm curious about what you see as as what's next for Team Rubicon as as the organization grows, as the as the geography grows and uh, the sort of the, the shape of the missions change. 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a few things from an organizational perspective that we're really pursuing. One significant uh, investment in programming will be to actually shift a little bit. We've been rebuilding homes since Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Maria, the 2017 season that that was uh, so awful. But we rebuild homes in all these communities and consistently find labor shortfalls, skilled labor shortfalls, skilled trade shortfalls. And in order to sustain our operations, but hopefully have a, a broader impact in the trade space, we will be investing in programming there. So mm. skilled trades training programming, that's very much in its infancy. It is tied through our work in rebuilding disaster affected communities, but it'll look, look and feel a little bit different than a lot of our service delivery does today. And then from a scaling perspective, we'll continue to grow domestically. One, one big ad is to do, it sounds silly because a lot of people may not resonate with, we, we exercise disaster plans. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's not aerobics, but it's testing the plans of communities so that they can best respond. Those types of exercises are required for some federal grant funding and, and many communities don't have enough money to pay someone externally to come in and exercise their plan. So as a way that our skilled volunteer base can contribute to community, we will, with certified people through the FEMA system, exercise plans so that small communities can apply for additional emergency management funding and hopefully make their community more ready before disaster. So those are a couple of new programming spaces that we'll be adding in the coming years. It is fantastic. And and what I love about where you're talking about where this is going, David, is is it it seems to me um that it's not just about the after the fact, it's the it's the preparation in, in advance and and that lends itself into not just being prepared for a disaster as it comes, but just it preparation for life and other things in general, which has a again an impact on that community in ways that are much larger than what your kind of uh, involvement might might kind of partake if you go oh you're you're training x number of people you're doing x number of things but that that is a compounding in fact a- across the board and so i just want to say kudos in, in in that and and where that's going and i i know you know i'm part of of a rotary uh you know element which is a service organization but um our numbers are as you said our numbers are decreasing um across the globe and so you guys are doing something right. You are obviously finding some of the touch points for volunteers, as well as the the value that you're bringing, the significance that you're you're um, adding into these people's lives, as well as the great work that you're doing. So, uh, just kudos to to you, kudos to you, Patty, just on uh, getting this research because that that I think is also a really huge component of all of this when we think about what it is that we can learn from this and so that we can go back and and make improvements, not just uh, in what you guys are doing, but again, across the board. And thank you for sharing all that. And I think think where we're (laughs) heading with that, I think that that's a way of saying, David and Patty, thank you so much for being guests on Behavior Grooves today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with David and Patty, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into 
our volunteering brains. Nailed it. Nailed, Nailed it. it. It was easy. That was good. Uh, so, Tim, I just have to say this was a really interesting. And my God, Team Rubicon is doing just some fantastic, fantastic work. But one of the things I really loved about this is this idea of the people doing the volunteering are actually being helped by the volunteers. It's not <laughs> right, just the recipients. Right. They're not just the people that after the hurricane are are being helped in, you know, getting their house back in order and doing all these other things that they're doing on their missions, but that the people who are doing it are getting value out of it. That psychological well-being. It's really cool. I mean, I, I think most people, when they volunteer, come away with it feeling like, oh, that was really nice. You know, I, I should do more of that. Or, oh, there's the, the little bit of happiness, right? But man, these guys are actually, their resilience is improving. Uh, on, the, on the psychological well-being scale, their life is literally getting better because of it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to note that the psychological well-being scale was originally developed by Carol Reif, and it's a 42-item psychological well-being uh, survey that people take. And so it measures kind of six different aspects of well-being and happiness. And we don't have time to go into it here, but uh, very cool. And it's, it's I think, the tool that Patty was using as, as she was looking into this and kind of getting those people and understanding that. And the interesting piece that I think is this idea uh, that Team Rubicon was built around, this idea of community, purpose, and identity. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. well, D David even said it so beautifully, like that That when when you've got the uniform on, that the soldiers actually feel a sense of, of community purpose and identity. Like they, they get that in spades when they've got the uniform on. But that, that sense of... Uh, connectedness or significance possibly yeah. gets gets reduced when you take the uniform off. Yeah, that idea that, that something is then missing. I had it and now I don't. And the idea that by doing this type of volunteerism, this type of service, that you are regaining that. And as you said, this idea of significance. So again, our conversation with Aria Krugelensky, you know, talking about this quest for significance that we're on, I can see that, right? You are in this role as a military, you know, whatever branch of the armed services that you're in, you're doing this work that you feel is making a difference in the world or having some impact. And all of a sudden, that's gone. And this idea of having that community, having that purpose, having an identity that I'm wearing a uniform and I am a soldier, I am whatever that would be, all of a sudden that's all missing and that element of significance is gone. And so really kind of cool that you can you can build that back in and give these people this this purpose, this community, and this identity, right? You know, uh, it struck me that you have been volunteering with Rotary for many years. It's a big volunteer organization with a, a, more than a million people two, around Almost the world. two million, yeah. So, almost two million, do it. Uh, but it's declining. Yeah, and, it, it's, it's a declining, at least in the United States, for sure. And that was something that, that struck me, right? When we were going through this, I kind of wrote this down going, why is Team Rubicon growing? when Rotary is declining in size. And I mean, again, you can think about community um, purpose and identity. And, and we, uh, you know, 
Rotarians, we have this sense of identity of who we are. We, yeah. we actually, we have a noun. We are Rotarians. You know, it's, it's this identity yeah. that we take. There's purpose. I mean, we do work uh, across the globe, both in our local communities. We have a community service kind of element, but they also have a global community and service aspect of it. So you're making a difference in people's, whether it's small, whether it is packing food for some people, whether it's giving them clothes. We do a, a hats and mitten drive every year for us. We do raking of um, people's lawns who can't get out there and rake. We're, we're making a small impact there, but we're also doing big things like getting water to communities in Guatemala and other areas around the globe that don't have fresh, safe water. We're building schools. We are doing a whole lot of really good work, but it's still not the same. And I, there's something missing that is there. Yeah. And I don't know what that is. So Significance, possibly? Uh, not to dwell too, too much on it, but yeah, it's I complex, mean, right? It's complex and it's, it's an interesting aspect. And it's one of the things I'm Again, we'll ponder more as I'm, you know, thinking through this, like, what's that magic ingredient that uh, Team Rubicon has that we're not necessarily tapping into from Rotary? So it's a good question. You know, lastly, I just want to say that uh, something that David said about the civilian military, civilian veteran divide is something that has been around in our country for a long time. And I look at the work that they're doing and just think that they're not only healing the the people who are suffering uh, in the in the communities, they're also healing the volunteers, and then they're also possibly having a favorable effect on the way uh, military is perceived by civilians. Yeah. So there's a like all these double bonus effects. I think it's just really cool work. It's the double secret probation that they're figuring out, right? All right. Well, I think that wraps up the most of the salient points from this conversation for me. How about for you? Yeah, that, that totally works for me, Kurt. It's always great to talk about good work and what's being done by good researchers like Patty and, 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 and really good pro-social folks like David. Just yeah, uh, thanks to both of them for being guests. We love talking about uh, behavioral science being applied in the wild. And this was one of those great places. But for now, groups, for now, we hope that you find these insights on volunteerism and well-being helpful this week as you go out and find your groove. <laughs>